Happy Saturday. Happy Independence Day week. It is July 2nd, 2022, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker. And I'm Michael Haney. And we are two of your deputy editors here at Airmail. Welcome to the show. Welcome to the show. Welcome to the great... We'll have some fireworks for you today of the good kind, and maybe even some corn on the cob and apple pie. TBD, Michael. I'm trying to stay off carbs. Buzzkill. Okay, great. All right. I have a question for you. Yes. Do you have any cash or coins in your pocket at this moment? Okay. I know where this is going. Yes, I still carry cash. I like to do it. I've gotten in these conversations with the de facto Gen Z I live with, Brooke, who said to me the other day, why don't you have Venmo? Why don't you have like, she's like, you're always carrying. I said, I like carrying cash. I think people like to be tipped in cash, but no. So tell us, I'll stop right there. Long answer, no. Why do you ask? All you need to know is apparently it's a new litmus test for are you old? If you answer yes, you're old. Okay, there I am. I am old. You're old. It's okay. I'm old too. Look, we live in New York. It's a tipping society here. I tip in cash too. I think you got to do it from time to time. There are a couple places you really need to have cash. Like, for example, the foot massage place on 8th Street. Okay? A $35 massage only happens if you pay cash. Otherwise, you get that upcharge for the credit card. Okay? It's important. Have cash on hand, people. God, we really do sound old. I just feel... Like if you walk around and you don't have cash in your pocket, what happens when like the SHI whatever goes down and you don't have any cash? I'm always like, you're going to be caught with nothing. Oh, what are you going to be like scanning your GPay into the thing? And no, got to have some money. Be ready. It's like the walking dead. Got to have that money. Yeah. Pretty much everyone under age 30 is disagreeing with us right now and thinking that we're chuggy. Sorry, we're chuggy. (laughs) That is who we are. That's the right of us as Americans, Michael, to be chuggy. It is Independence Day. Would you like to define chuggy for those people who might not know? I think chuggy is the new OK Boomer, right? What's the origin of that? I have no idea. I'm chuggy. I don't know where these things start. I just know where they end up. But all this conversation, no, it's made me think about a story that is in the issue as well this week by Will Pavia. And it's about a woman named Risa Mickenberg in New York City who is a hermit or a female hermit, right? She's the lady hermit, right? Yes. Okay. But tell me about her. Okay. So she's 55 years old and she, look, I can understand this instinct. She proudly retreated from the world uh, in New York City, and she's promoting a whole new business that sells to the introverted lifestyle. And she calls herself a hermit, a female hermit. She even has a glossy magazine called Hermet Magazine, which is a lifestyle magazine for aspiring lady hermits, which she thinks will do for them what World of Interiors did for Artful Wallpaper. But they like to practice DEY, which is a variation of DIY, which is do everything yourself. But she broke through a couple of years ago when she had the idea of making the perfect hermet accessory, which is a mobile phone made of wood that would not connect you with anybody. She seems to be onto something, right? This is some strange combination of cottage core and asceticism. Let's just call it what it is. This is eccentric behavior, okay? Like a psychiatrist might be of use here. Back in the day, there were people like this, like Hugat Clark, remember? They, we called them recluses, right? The people who stayed inside their houses and didn't go out and see everyone. I admire the impulse to make it a thing, but I don't know, Michael. I don't know about this. I don't know. It's not just the impulse to make it a thing. It is, it's, Grey Gardens would not have happened if they'd been like posting on Instagram, right? You've got to just sort of, if you're going to go in, go all in. Yeah, exactly. It's like, are you really enjoying the hermetic lifestyle that much if you feel compelled to share it to the world and glamorize it? Like there's something there that doesn't gel for me. 
Okay, you know what else you're sounding like? What? We're sounding like a little bit like Larry David. A little bit, a little <laughs> bit, are. a little bit like Larry David. And I'm bringing that up because Joel Stein in this week's column, The View From Here, looks at, I'm sure you're a big fan of Curb Your Enthusiasm. You remember the spite store idea that Larry had once? Oh, I loved it. This is when Larry got into some type of an altercation with a gentleman who owned the coffee shop that he frequented. And so he opened up his own shop next door called Latte Larry's, selling the exact same drinks, but at drastically reduced prices with the sole purpose of putting this guy out of business. And it was successful and it became a trend in Hollywood. It was called the Spite Store. My favorite on the episode, again, a bunch of other celebrities opened up their own store, including when Ray's Exotic Birds pissed off Sean Penn, he opens Sean's Exotic Birds right across the street, right? So it's this idea that, you know what, screw you. I'm going to put you out of business by starting something better, right? Yeah, I mean, it's a funny idea for a television show. Like, hats off to the folks in the writer's room that came up with that. But it's not so funny when it's playing out in American life, especially in American politics. Well, yeah, you've seen it started in the last year. It sort of played out a little bit in American business. I don't know if you've followed this brand at Jeremy's Razors. They got a lot of publicity a few months ago when Harry's Razors pulled their advertising from this company called The Daily Wire after a Twitter user told the company that one of their conservative podcasters had views he didn't like. So the company got all mad. They bought the website, IHateHarrys.com, and started this alternative razor company to compete with Harry's Razors. And you've had that. You've then had a, a Starbucks in Tempe, Arizona, where they asked some police officers to leave because a customer said they were uncomfortable. So... Another guy started a place called Conservative Grounds, which ships bags of coffee with the outline of Trump's head. So it's the Spite Store has now become a real thing in American culture, right? Yeah, I mean, it's just such a bad look. It looks so petty, doesn't it? Although, I don't know, perhaps I could come up with an idea for a Spite Store. All right, Michael, if you had to open a Spite Store, I'm sure you already have something percolating. What would it be? My favorite Spite Story, you know, here's my Spite Story Hall of Fame, which Joel has in the piece. Okay, in 1948, just after the war in Germany, there were two brothers named the Dossler brothers, Rudolf Dossler, and he couldn't stand his brother's politics. So he quit the family shoe store, Gata Shoe Company, and he founded a Spite Store factory on the other side of the river, and he called his company, Puma, his brother then renamed the main company, Adidas. So... Sneakerheads will know this, but that's a Spite store. So what's your Spite story, Hall of Fame? I don't know. I mean, it'd probably be one of the yoga studios that charges me $50 for a class. And then if I walk in two minutes late, they tell me, sorry, and I have to go home. What? Yeah, I know. That's a bummer. I mean, that's New York for you. The thing is, like, after we have bad experience in these places, we don't go back to them, right? Where's the namaste in that? I know. Well, look, they don't want to disturb the people that are already practicing. I get it. Blah, blah, blah. I like a grace period, you know? You know what disturbs me is the guy who smells of patchouli oil next to me. That's what disturbs me. Me. No kidding. <laughs> With the guy breathing heavily and then dripping sweat all over me, like yeah, but that is anyway. cool. That is cool. That's what you. Pay, that's what you pay fifty bucks for. Okay, Michael. So take me back. Take me way, way back to nineteen seventy-one, baby. I think that was fifty years ago. Yikes! Fifty-one years ago. Mm, okay, May twelfth. Mick Jagger marrying Bianca Perez Mora Macias in Saint-Tropez. You know the picture. You remember the photograph. Mick and Bianca kneeling before the officiant, getting mobbed in the street, looking happy and madly in love in the backseat of a car. The union didn't make it, but the images last forever. And in those photos, Bianca was famously wearing an Yves Saint Laurent 
tuxedo and Mick was wearing a Tommy Nutter suit. Who was Tommy Nutter, the man behind House of Nutter on Savile Row? That name sounds like it's something out of a pornographic film. It is not. I assure you it's real. This is a really fun story from Mark Rosa this week. Tommy Nutter was a real man. He was the tailor of choice for many years for rock stars, swinging London notables, and basically anyone who wanted to look like one of those people. And Tommy started a house on Savile Row, and his tailoring was all about sartorial pyrotechnics. No surprise then that the rock stars came to it. He he did stuff that, as Mark said, would make Bo Brummel blush. He had soaring lapels, roped shoulders, crotch-accentuating trousers, and the Nutter look was a throwback to the glory days of the Duke of Windsor, and yet it was utterly futuristic. It, had, it, was, it was really glam before glam. And the Beatles, back in 69... 70 were huge fans. John Lennon wore another suit when he married Yoko Ono in Gibraltar near Spain, as they say in the song. You can also see them on the cover of Abbey Road, all the Beatles, except for George Harrison, who's wearing denim, much like a California guy. But all the other three Beatles are wearing Tommy Nutter's creations. And it was supposedly the Beatles who introduced Mick to Bianca. I've always loved that photo. The other photo I mentioned, if you look at Mick, you can Google it. It's in the Mick with Bianca in the back of a limousine, and he's got the white suit on. She's got her tuxedo on. But his stuff is still loved by so many people because it just has that sort of well-dressed rebel vibe to it. So what happened to him, Michael? And why can I not get a suit made from him today? Because this all sounds very appealing. So Nutter died in 1992. He was 49 years old. He died of AIDS-related illnesses. Um, His last hurrah was he designed Jack Nicholson's Joker costume for Batman in 1989. But his legacy does live on as part of the reason Mark wrote this story about Nutter is his ace cutters are still around. They're still mostly working. And Mark found one of them based in Knightsbridge, who actually mentored Stella McCartney, and he continues to service high-level clients around the world. So Mark went to him. It's a, His name is Joe Morgan, and he's at Chittleborough and Morgan, who happened to have made suits for the late Charlie Watts as well. So Chittleborough retired, but Morgan still has the old patterns and can make you a Nutter suit. I mean, that's pretty cool. Yeah, I can't believe you wouldn't have one. I know. I just had my first ever suit made. I need to send you a picture. Tell me what you think. It's all white. So you're in the vibe, aren't you? It's all white. It's linen. It's DB. That's double-breasted, ladies. I'm kind of into it. I understand why men do this. Like, after wasting infinite paychecks on ridiculous looking dresses for many, many years. It's kind of nice just to invest in one good looking suit that's going to service me well for a very long time or so I hope. I'd love to get another suit, but I just don't think I could rock it. No pun intended. Honey, I think you could and you should. I'm here to support you. Get it done. Well, speaking of getting it done, you know who gets it done? Who? Julia Vitale, our book editor. Oh, Julia. We love her. She's here to uh, for us today. Julia's our esteemed colleague at Airmail. En route to her honeymoon. Sorry, I had to drop that in. And she still managed to make time for us to talk about the summer books you cannot, under any circumstances, miss. We are thrilled to have her here, Julia Vitale. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. All right, let's start with fiction. What are the big books on everyone's radar? So on the fiction front, there's Knopf's big summer novel, Nightcrawling by Layla Motley. It's a debut novel about a young Black woman trying to make it 
in East Oakland. I don't want to give away too much. It's similar to Tommy Orange and his novel They're There in that it kind of gets at the gentrification happening in the Bay Area, which is where I grew up actually, in a very like visceral sense. And it's beautifully written. It was actually based on a true story and it's out now. So a holiday planning, it's a good one to keep in mind. Then Otessa Moshfeg, who I'm sure everyone knows wrote Eileen and My Year of Rest and Relaxation, has a new novel out called Lipvona. It's kind of anything but a beach read. It's set in a fictional medieval fiefdom, kind of crazy, crazy read. But if you like the author, then chances are you'll like this book. It's definitely worth taking a look at. We also have a great interview with Otessa in Airmail, if you care to check it out. And this one is out now from Penguin Press, so also good to pack for vacations and whatever. And then I guess for as close to a beach read as I'm willing to get, there's this new biography of Jean Reese publishing later this month, which recently turned me on to this 20th century British author who I'd always like heard of in passing, but never actually read any of her work. It's amazing. It lives up to the hype that she's suddenly getting just ahead of this, this biography being released. And so if you haven't read any of her work, I would definitely suggest either Good Morning Midnight or Wide Sargasso Sea or really any of her books. Like Wide Sargasso Sea is like this post-colonial feminist prequel to Charlotte Bronte's not Jane Eyre. And she wrote it in 1966. Like it's so, it feels so like something that you'd be reading currently, except that it was written six years ago, almost six years ago. So she's just really great. So I would suggest not only reading about her, but also reading some of her stuff. Okay. So Julia, we've been hearing a lot of buzz about the new novel from Aleph, Bad Tumen, either or. It just came out on May 24th. It was excerpted in The New Yorker, which I read, and I have to say her writing drives me a little bit bananas, but what's your take? Should we be looking at this more seriously? Well, I actually, I think it's supposed to be kind of like a sequel to The Idiot, and I actually preferred it to The Idiot for what that's worth, but I think when we're talking about this kind of thing, it's just whether you like the author, but I would definitely suggest it. I Like I said, I think it's better than The Idiot, so try it out. Okay, have you read the new David Sedaris, Happy Go Lucky? I have. I read all David Sedaris. It's so funny. I wouldn't say it's a big departure from anything else that we've read, but it's so fun. It's a great summer read. All right. I'm going to needle you a bit on this point because I thought that the way he wrote about his father was actually very personal and honest and a little disturbing in a way that we're, we're used to that from Sedaris, but it's usually tinged with so much humor. And when he writes about his father, for me, it felt a little bit different in tone from his previous work. It had a little bit more heft to it, a little bit more pain underneath it. What did you think about those essays? I don't know. I I guess I'm so used to reading about his dad by now. I didn't really think maybe there was a little more sadness associated than usual, but he's just so wry about those types of topics in general that I guess I didn't notice anything particularly crazy, but I think he does a good job, but it's definitely hard to read in sections, I think, especially like you said, when he's talking about the family stuff. We've also been hearing a lot of buzz about Sloane Crosby's new novel, Cult Classic. This is the story of a protagonist named Lola who's dealing with the detritus of her romantic past after she runs into a bunch of ex-boyfriends in Chinatown in Lower Manhattan. Turns out they're not that coincidental. Did you read this? I know we had a great take five from Sloane in Airmail. Have you read the book? What do you think? Should we look at it? I have. I love her and everything she writes. She's so funny and so good, even when she's not writing about funny stuff. So highly suggest her novel and she's on a roll. I mean, she has this novel out and then she has a nonfiction book coming out, I think in 2023 about these crazy experiences that have happened to her. So she's 
she's just amazing. And it's the timing is good. It's, it's a great summer novel to add to your list. Okay, great. Let's move on to nonfiction, our favorite genre. What are the big nonfiction books that we should be paying attention to? John Taylor Williams's book, The Shores of Bohemia, is basically a social history of the American creative class in the first half of the 20th century. And he does it through the lens of Cape Cod, which I think is really fun and summary. Which, and Cape Cod actually drew a good portion of those members of the American creative class. We're talking about like Tennessee Williams, Mary McCarthy, Norman Mailer. And that one is out now from FSG. So a fun one. And then I guess my only other one would be Patrick Rodden Keefe has a new book out. It's a collection of his essays called Rogues. And as the title suggests, it profiles kind of all manner of grifters, killers, rebels, and crooks from Donald Trump to El Chapo. I love everything he writes. He wrote this great book on the Irish Troubles. And obviously recently he wrote about the Sacklers. And this one is no different. So I would highly suggest it. And I think essays are great also for summer. You're at the beach, you read an essay and go swimming. And we also have a great interview with Patrick and Armel if you care to read that. And this one's out on June 28th from Doubleday. I love The Shores of Bohemia. I'm glad you recommended that one. Yeah, that one's really great. It's one of those things where you get so many layers of story and detail and reporting and culture and it all woven together. It's a fun one. Yeah. And place is like a real character in it. Okay, Julia, you have highfalutin taste. And by highfalutin, I mean that in the most complimentary possible way. You don't do beach reads. You don't do trash novels. What's the closest thing that we're going to find on your bookshelf that is akin to a traditional garbagey summer beach read? Honestly, I'm, it's the Jean Reese novels for me. And I really feel that people will think the same once they read them. They're really fun. I mean, yeah, we're not talking like totally trashy. Obviously, she's an amazing writer, but they're my beach reads this summer. All right, personality litmus test. How do you feel about Bridget Jones? I love Bridget Jones. Yes! Thank you, Julia. How could anyone not? So too, just too good. Helen Fielding, greatest living writer. That's all I have to say. Truly. Yes, I completely agree. All right. Well, Julia, thank you so much for joining us. We can't wait to see you after the holiday. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. Thanks, Julia. You always make us so excited about books and you and Jim Kelly doing the book coverage every week. It's one of our favorite parts of every issue. So thank you. Thank you, guys. So actually, speaking of books, this is a perfect segue into our next guest, who is a editor here at Airmail, Matt Cap, who is the basically the only biographer who dealt with Gord Vidal, who lived to have a professional relationship with him. Gord Vidal was famously cranky, chewed up and spat out many people who wanted to be or attempted to be his biographer, but Matt made a terrific documentary about him, and he's got a wonderful two-part story starting this week about what he learned from Gore and what it was like with Gore in his final years, right? Yeah, it's like Matt Cat by day is the research and legal editor for Airmail, and by night he's top-notch author, and he's getting it done and frankly making the rest of us look unproductive. That being said, we still love him, and we're happy to have him here to talk about all things Gore Vidal. Welcome, Matt. Matt, we're so happy to have you here to talk about Gore Vidal. First and foremost, how did you meet him originally? I first came across Gore. I was working my first job out of college. I was working at a little distribution company called Mystic Fire Video. And my first task was to organize their closet of videotapes. And I came across one called Gore Vidal, the man who says no. I'd heard of Gore, but I really hadn't read any of his work. So I went home that night and I watched this extraordinary documentary about his run for Senate in California in 1982. And it was 
him traveling around, him debating his candidates. There's a great scene where he absolutely eviscerates Jerry Brown in a debate. And I thought, who is this guy? I really want to know more about him. I want to read his work. I want to know what his thoughts are about American history. So then I went out and I started reading his essays. And a few years passed and I was working at another company for Lee Grant, the actress, and she had produced a documentary on Sidney Poitier for American Masters and had a connection to the executive producer of that show. So I thought, well, here's an opportunity to make my own documentary about Gore Vidal. So I wrote him a fax. That was it. So I got his fax number and sent him a fax proposing a documentary. And then I followed up with this glossy pitch that I sent to him. And weeks elapsed and finally decided to call him on the phone. And the program I had proposed to him was called Gore Vidal in Search of the Best Man, which is a reference to his 1960 play about a fictional presidential race. And I didn't know what he'd say, but when I finally got him on the phone, he said to me, before he said anything else, he said, sounds like the title of a rom-com about a gay wedding. And I thought that was the end of that. But we talked for a while and he agreed. He told me that no one would ever finance such a movie about him. Of course not. But sure enough, through my connections to American Masters and to its executive producer, Susan Lacey, she greenlit the project and off we went to Rome and to Arondanai, his villa in Ravello, and filmed for the next two years. What was he like as a collaborator? He was great. Now, I thought he would interfere. He would try to direct from behind the scenes. He didn't. He's a pro. He'd been on TV his entire career. He knew how the game worked. He largely gave us, other than changing that title, he largely let us film what we wanted. I mean, there were some limits. One thing that was very frustrating when we would fil- film him, which we did in the upstairs room of the villain Laurent Denay, which is where Princess Margaret actually used to stay and which Gore la- later stored a lot of his books. We would interview him up there during the days and he would tell us, we'd be talking about certain stories and we'd say, oh, Gore, can you elaborate more on this or that story on camera? And he wouldn't do it. And when we were done filming every night, we'd go down, he'd light up a fire in the grand fireplace of his office And then he would tell us all those stories he wouldn't tell us on camera that day, which was very frustrating. So he didn't like to talk a lot about his personal. Obviously, we tried to get him to talk about Jimmy Trimble, who I could explain further, but that's that's another whole story. But he wouldn't talk much about Jimmy Trimble. He didn't want to talk about his love life, his partners over the years. So that was kind of off limits. But I got him to talk to me about that stuff off camera, but he wouldn't talk about that on camera. Matt, you were really like one of the just about only biographers who maintained a good relationship with him. I mean, despite the some ups and downs, you stay with friends in touch with him until the end of his life, really. And he was, as you sort of reveal here, famously ornery or prickly, personally person. How do you see him towards the end of his life? And how would you describe him to people? Well, I think he was very, very disappointed in what had happened to the country. And God, I can only imagine what he would have thought of how things are going now. But that's something also that Fabian Boudelet, who had been his assistant up until almost the end, and I have a line in the piece about Fabian too, and Fabian had served in the Navy and had kind of the same feelings as Gore about how could this country have gotten so far off track from what its founders had conceived. That just always, to me, and as time went on, it was just so upsetting to Gore to see what had happened to the country. And it's funny, back then he was mentioning he had written a piece in, I believe it was GQ, in 1992, in which he saw what was going to happen with this. And he referenced the David Dukes, and you had the Pat Buchanans. And I don't know what he would have thought about where we are today, but I can only imagine it would have been even that much more devastating to him. But I think at the end, he'd given up. And I think 
he wanted to die. I hate to say it, if he could have found someone to euthanize him, he would have. But I think his solution is basically he just wanted to drink himself to death because he was so disappointed with what had happened with this country. He, in a way that no one I ever met, took what happened in American politics so seriously and was so sort of personally offended. I mean, he used to remind everyone that he had come from the ruling class and turned against it. And of course, his grandfather was Senator T.P. Gore of Oklahoma, the famous blind senator. And Gore likes to talk about how that was his education, was reading to his grandfather, the congressional record, poetry, novels. And so he was really connected to that, to Washington and to American history in a way that no other writer that I'd ever come across was with. And I think that's part of the reason it was so heartbreaking for him to see what had happened. And I can, like I said, I can only imagine what he would think of where we are now, particularly having listened to the January 6th hearings. Matt Gore was a novelist. He was a satirist. He was a public intellectual. He left behind so many important works. As someone who knows his of so well, what are some of your favorites? Well, I love the essays. And that was my introduction to him after having seen The Man Who Said No, when I went about doing my research, I started with the essays. I think he's one of the greatest American essayists of the last century. And there's a wonderful piece he has about Ronald Reagan and Nancy, who he used to make fun of all the time, called Ronnie and Nancy, one of my favorite essays. And then I moved on to his historical novels. And Burr was really my favorite, of course, historical novels. I mean, the research was incredible. Gore would spend, when he'd write these novels, he'd spend months, if not years, either American Academy in Rome, where he researched his historical novel, Julian, or Burr. He went through all of Burr's diaries, spoke to academics, went to libraries all over the country in the research of that book. I mean, the level, and he did all his research mostly himself, mind you. So that just makes Burr such an extraordinary read because we're, and he's incorporating, even though it's a, a quote unquote historical novel, he's working off real records, real diaries, congressional record, everything else to sort of paint these pictures of these portraits, in this case of Burr. And then of course, you can't not love Myra Breckenridge, which is just a wild, that's the, the other end of the spectrum of his novels, his fantastical imaginary novels, Myra Breckenridge. It's almost impossible to describe Myra Breckenridge and his other novels of that vein, Waiting for Golgotha and Kalki. Again, Burr was really the top for me, Myra Breckenridge and the essays. And I encourage everyone, particularly nowadays, with some historical context, to go back and read the essays. It's really such a time capsule to go back into his view of American history. Well, Matt, thank you so much for your wonderful story, as well as your memories. Thank you. We always love hearing from you, and it's such a treat to get to do this. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, Michael, I know you've got something to recommend to us. Quit holding out. Okay, two very brief ones. They both come out of the issue, and one is they're both sort of keeping with the theme of this week's episode, which is summer reading and books. The first is a book that is in our books column. It's called One True Sentence. Writers and Readers on Hemingway's Art. And I got into the Hemingway Ken Burns documentary that came out on PBS about a year ago. And Hemingway aficionado, you know that he always said, if I can just write one true sentence, that's what every day is about. And so this is a book where they ask writers and readers about that idea of picking one true sentence that they love from one of Hemingway's stories and what it meant to them. So you have people like Russell Banks, A. Scott Berg. And if you're a writer or just someone who loves good writing and writers talking about writing, highly suggest this book. It's available soon from David R. Godin. You can order it now uh, online. And uh, I think it's a good, good little insight into how creative people think. And 
The other thing that creative people need to think is quiet and locking the world out. And our tech and gear expert, Jonathan Margolis, otherwise known as Inspector Gadget, recommended this week. I'm putting on this on my Christmas list already. It's from the Master and Dynamic MW75 headphones that Jonathan says are the best ones out there right now, the ones you've been searching for. So they start at $599, but as he said, it's totally worth it. So I believe him. I trust him. I always encourage you to check in with Jonathan for the best in tech and gear. Michael, I'm glad to hear that about those headphones because the beats I'm wearing right now are currently cutting off the circulation in my head. Bit of a problem. Speaking of the opposite of quiet, there's something wonderful to listen to if you have Spotify or Apple Music or any of those good services. A marvelous new album from Regina Spector came out on June 24th. It's called Home Before and After. And a lot has happened to Spector since the release of her last studio album, which came out six years ago, Remember Us to Life. Her father died. She had another baby. And this album is just full of so much heart and really incredible songwriting. And I encourage you all to listen to it. There's a great new single that I can't stop listening to, and it's called Up the Mountain. And it's just like songwriting at its finest. There is so much going on there. I think it would make a great episode just saying of my favorite podcast, Aside From Ours, which is, guess? What your favorite podcast is? Aside From Ours, yeah. Kara Swisher. No! Song Exploder. So confidential to Rishikesh Hirway. Please book Regina Spector because I want to hear the story behind this song. That's all I've got for you, baby. That means it's probably time for me to read us out. Yes, indeed. Have a safe and sane 4th of July, as I used to say when I was a kid. If you're going to light off those fireworks, enjoy the summer night, the long weekend. Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alessandra Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan, and our deputy editors are Ashley Baker, Chris Garrett, Nathan King, and Julie Vitale. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. Speaking of music, our theme is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We'll be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure to subscribe at Spotify or Apple Music. But most of all, thank you again for joining us.